Right, we are back, people. Tempo and Flow Music Industry Talks. We have an exciting guest today. It's going to be Keith Harris. We had some technicals, so we're starting late. Um, but let's try to get him on here. I know the elders with technology have a tough time <laughs> at times. Um, but let's try to get him on here. So let's see what we could do. Remember, this is a podcast on Apple Music and Spotify. Um, you could listen to his back. You could watch it back. You could get involved. So, Selena, talk Keith Harris through it and we'll get him on. He's going to put in a request to join. But yeah, how's everyone doing, man? How's everyone feeling? How is how is things going? Just trying to get Keith Harris on. Oh, I think I can see him. Request now, Keith. You've joined. Well, now you got a request to go live with me. We got one final hurdle. <laughs> this is exciting. I feel like I'm teaching my dad technology. Here we go. We are getting there. You don't use an iPhone. Keith. I don't use an iPhone. I don't use social media, Lloyd. <laughs> well, we got there in the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're 15 minutes late, but it's fine. This is, this is where... Yeah. I, I, I was told it was good. I was told 8.30. <laughs> All right. Well, my bad, my bad. Okay. 8.30. We're so, ready to go. I'm so glad we got you on diary. this. Sorry about that. So, according, according to me, we are 22 seconds late. <laughs> or a minute, no, a minute and 22 seconds now. A minute and 22 seconds. How's your connection? It's all right. I think it's all right. Yeah, I'd I say... All right. I don't know whether you guys can see me all right. Yeah, we can see you. We can hear you. You can hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. I'm to myself in the picture now. How's that? Perfect. Good. Perfect. It's all right. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, so I had to move the phone away so I can get a decent shot of me. So <laughs> no impossible all that. Listen, thank you very much for doing this. Um, no, no. It's an honour and a pleasure to have you on this, man. Yeah, I'm just, it's my pleasure. Right, I appreciate it. So let's get into it, Keith. I oh. mean, you've got an illustrious career, but how did you, how did you start? in the music business well it, it always makes me smile when people call it a career <laughs> and the reason for that is because a career to me feels like something that you kind of plan you know yeah. you know where you're going to start you know where you're going to go next and you have kind of aspirations something to head for all that kind of stuff it was never like that you know i was i was a fan and an enthusiast about music mm. and be involved in music any way i could so, you know, I learned to play guitar when I was a kid. Uh, I joined bands as, as 
we tended to do back in those days. You know, I realized that I wasn't even the greatest guitar player in the band, let alone in the world. <laughs> so I knew that wasn't going to work. So I ended up on, on the management side. And um, I think a lot of managers understand you know, what I'm saying. When what happened was, you know, the band suggested to me that I should manage them. Yeah. And, um, you know, I heard my mouth saying, that's a good idea. Right. While my brain was sort of thinking, what's a manager do? <laughs> and so I ended up managing this band. The band, surprisingly enough, didn't make it. Um, nothing to do with the fact the manager hadn't got a clue what he was doing, I'm sure. <laughs> but the band didn't happen. So I got a job in a record company. Yeah. And, and the first record company I worked for was a small folk music label called Transatlantic Records. And I was doing uh, regional radio promotions. Mm. Talking back in 1975. Uh, yeah. And the, 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 at the time, commercial radio was just opening up. There hadn't been... Uh, Capital Radio opened in October 1974. And that was the first commercial radio station. So the commercial stations were kind of going on the air, you know, as I was doing the job. And so I, I just kept adding stations I had to visit. Mm. And then in the end, through a, um, a I better call it a misunderstanding, mm. <laughs> between myself and the general manager of, of the label, I ended up leaving the label and walking to the nearest record company, which is EMI Records, and asking if they had any jobs going. And they suggested that uh, maybe I could get a job working on the Motown label, which is one of their licensees. And so I became head of promotion for Motown in 1976 and uh, stayed there as head of promotions. I then became uh, acting general manager of Motown in 1978. Mm -hmm. And then I left Motown UK and I went to work with Stevie Wonder in America. So I was in Stevie's office and, and, and in the Motown office, uh, 6255 Sunset in LA, which was, um, yeah. Incredible. Surprising to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then I spent three years living in LA, working with Stevie directly. And mm. then I came back to the UK and started my own management company. Um, okay. I've kind of had ever since, although I've kind of wound down the management side now because it's too hard work. <laughs> too hard work for yeah. little pay. Um, no, I'm an old man. <laughs> Can I tell you? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. And, um, and then what happened after the management company? Like, what did you do? Well, I mean, you know, basically, I, I managed, once I got back here, I ended up managing a whole succession of, of artists mainly UK R&B type acts. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, some of them you would know, some of them you wouldn't, some of them you're far too young to know. But I, I, I managed the guy called Junior Giskin was the first. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky because Junior is a great artist, but also he had a, a big hit record called Mammy Used to Say, which was oh. the first record they released when I started managing him. And um, that obviously, if you have a hit act like that, that sets you on your way. Mm. Not not only was it a, a top 10 pop single here, it was a number two R&B record in America as well. Wow. It, it kind of played into my experience because I, I had experience on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm. 
So I was very fortunate that my first act also played to my strengths. You know? And then I went on to manage um, uh, Omar and Lyndon David Hall, a couple of other people. So, you know, I've, I've had, fortunately for me, I've had some success on the management side. Um, and then I've, I got involved in other things. I um, also got involved in uh, the first honours degree in commercial music at the University of Westminster, where I, and I wrote the music business module and, and taught on that degree for about 16 years. Yeah. Um, and, and, and other things happened to me. <laughs> when I say happened to I mean happened to me. So I, I became the chairman of the Music Managers Forum, which is kind of the manager's trade body and chairman of a thing called Music Tank, which was a kind of a, a, a sub, um, a, an offshoot from the University of Westminster, which is a kind of music business think tank, a network working forum. And I've got basically, I've always followed things that interest me. And I've been lucky enough to have some really you know, good things come up for me. You know, um, mm. you know I, one of the things I, I would say is I, I'm somebody with, no conspicuous talent, but yeah, you know, I've been quite lucky. Yeah. But one of the things that I will say, and, and this is something that actually my daughter keeps going on about, and I've, I've kind of been encouraged to say is that there was a, there's a South African golfer called Gary Player. And he was doing an interview once and somebody said to him, Gary Player, people say that you're a lucky golfer. Uh, what do you say to that? And he said, yeah, I'm probably quite lucky. But one of the things I've noticed is the harder I practice, the luckier I get. Right? <laughs> and I would say the same about me and, and the music business, which is yeah. that I've been really lucky. But yeah. one of the things I've noticed is the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. And that's kind of been the case over the years. You know, I, I, I try, because I like it so much, I try to get involved in, in loads of things. And there are loads of things that don't even pay me but they, they pay me in different ways. Mm. You know, so a, a lot of, uh, I've, I've spoken of universities and colleges and, you know, s seminars and, and often, you know, for nothing. But I'm enthusiastic about it. And I'm enthusiastic about, particularly about bringing younger people through the business. Mm. And, and also being frank about it. <clears throat> it's, it's quite important. And I, I've always felt it's really important in the UK music business for young black people to know that it's possible to succeed. Because mm. be so, there's so many barriers put in place. And that doesn't mean, you know, hey, I'm a great success. But it does mean that it's, they need to see people, you know, black people in positions of authority and in positions yeah. of seniority who have kind of been in the business for a long time because otherwise it can be really discouraging because there aren't enough of us. Mm. So if people don't see anybody, then they have nothing to aim for. True. That's true. And we kind of jumped straight in there, Keith. We go straight <laughs> in there. I mean, I was going to take it back, but I feel like it's so important that we address this because I personally met you when I worked at PPL. Yeah, And I remember no one told me about you, actually. You know, no one even said you're into music, speak to Keith Harris. I had to just cold email you and say, look, this is what I, you know, it's my passions. 
this is what I want to do, this is how I want to be. And I remember your advice on being, look, just attack it, you know, just do what you can. And if you need any help, let me know. And, you know, it sounds like you know a lot of people, but to be able to see you at least helped understand that there is a senior black elder father figure, someone that we could just ask you for your advice and your opinion. Um, and, you know, you wrote a letter in Music Week the other day, hmm. um, an open letter. And I thought it was interesting because you something that stuck with me was when you said, it's all right to do the Blackout Tuesday and that, but don't let it be in vain. You know, yeah. don't yeah. let it be in vain. And that was ringing in my head, even for myself as a A&R at Warner Records and a manager of acts, it's like, use my voice, you know, <laughs> use my voice for good because we need to have younger, the younger generation, seeing people like myself, like you, whoever, and understanding that it's possible. Yeah. Um, to touch on that open letter, how, what did you, you could probably elaborate on it. What did you mean? Why did you feel like you had to write that open letter to explain that this shouldn't be in vain? Well, I'll explain. What happened was that I can't, again, because I don't do social media, I was late to hear about Blackout Tuesday. Right. right. And um, I heard about it and I thought, well, it's an interesting idea. And then my oldest son, who's also a manager, I don't know if you know him, uh, it's called Hamish. Right? Of course I do. I play football with him. <laughs> yeah. <okay. laughs> right. Well, well, Hamish called me up and he said, you know, Dad, you should really do something for Blackout Tuesday. You should maybe write a letter to, to Lucien Grange and David Joseph and some of the big wigs that you know in the music business. Big up, Hamish. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and make a statement. <clears throat> and I was saying, oh, you know, it, it might seem a bit self-serving. It might seem like I'm kind of looking for something. Right. Mm. Um, but it actually happened at the time when I was having this discussion with Hamish, my second son, who is also just setting, putting his toes into the music business, who's called Scott. Scott was round. And, um, and I said, I was talking about this. I said, oh, come on, Dad. You know, look, you're nearly 70. Right? You've been in the music business for all these years. You've done plenty. People aren't necessarily going to think that you're self-serving mm. you know, if you write something. Mm. And I thought, you know what? You are right. You know, it, it's kind of incumbent on people like myself. It's too easy for me to, you know, having come towards the end of my career, to sit back and, and you know, know what's the right thing to do, but just do nothing. Because, I mean, I don't really need to be getting involved in this. Mm. But I thought, you know, there are so few people who can make a statement that I wrote the letter to make a statement. And you know, the, over the years, there have been several attempts to do something about, particularly the black music business side. I mean, as well as the artists, who've always, always had a raw deal as well, black British artists. But on the business side, the mm. execs have had a, a, a really terrible deal in terms of music business execs. I mean, it's improved. And, and a measure of the improvement is that when I started, when I said when I started, for probably the first the 10 years that I was in the business, when I went to the big music business events, 
you know, like the, the awards, the Ivers or whatever happened to be, the, the big award shows. You know, mm. when I started, I could count the number of black people there on one finger. <laughs> and, then, and then it went to the fingers of one hand, right? <laughs> and then, you know, it actually improved a bit, but for probably the next 10, 15 years, mm. there were more black people, but I knew every black person in the room. Mm. Yeah, and you know that can't be right. <laughs> can't be. But, but now when I go to events, I see a lot of young black people, execs in the room, and many of them I don't know. So I know that in terms of a numbers game, it has certainly improved. What, I, what I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing people in real senior positions. I mean, upper, upper middle management roles. Mm. But when I'm in the boardrooms, and I've been in boardrooms, as you know, because I was on the board of PPL and, and so on and so forth, you know, I'm not seeing any other black people. And that can't be right in this day and age. So, you know, so I felt I needed to speak up. And, and the point is, I said, over the years, there have been loads of false dawns where you think something's going to happen. You know, record labels set up a black music division and bring in young black execs and all that kind of stuff. And then they seem to stall. You know, they get to a certain level in the company and then they don't rise any further. <clears throat> so I'm just hoping that this time people can rise all the way through and all the way to the top. You know, and, you know, like I say, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's not about me in that I've been able to, to get on boards and I've been able to rise up through the company. It's about the next generation. And they really, there need to be some proper change. And I don't, you know, Black Lives Matter is great, great movement, but it's not, it can't just be a flash in the pan. You know, I do feel this time that some attitudes are genuinely changing. Mm. And I'm hoping that in six months' time, people are still on this. You know, it hasn't just become, you know, a kind of a background thing. I'm mm. hoping people's attitudes and opinions have genuinely changed. It doesn't mean that, that you know, things, everything's going to change overnight. But people's attitudes and opinions are, have changed. And people are getting called out on things they should have been called out on years ago. Yeah. And, and in the letter, you know, it, I was, again, I was quite reluctant to do it. But I know that over the years, what happens is that when somebody like me or, or anybody speaks out on these subjects, people say, well, you know, it's just kind of sour grapes because they haven't done very well. Mm. So the second part of my letter was, was setting out the fact that, you know, I'm not dissatisfied with, with how my life's gone. You know, I have my OBE and I've got my honorary doctorate from the University of Westminster and I've been named in Music Industry Champion by the Music Managers Forum, all these kind of accolades. This is amazing. You have which, an OBE. Well, the, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But, but the point is, I'm not, you know, I, yeah, I'm not saying that I'm the, to big myself up. I'm saying it because it stops people from saying, oh, he's just complaining because... You know, he hasn't done very well. Well, I'm not sure how well I'm supposed to do, but I'm happy with as far as I've got. You know, I'm not a millionaire, but I don't need to be. You know, I've got a load of other things going on which keep me quite satisfied with how things have gone for me. 
Yeah. And I feel, you know, I think that it felt right to just jump into that because you mentioned it. And I feel like I read the open letter and took a lot of positives from it, a lot of um, power from it. And I do think hopefully a change will come. Do you know what I mean? I think there is a lot of black executives, male and female, that are using their voice, willing to speak up. And I think it could only help change. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I've, I've been really impressed with the response by some of the, the more senior black execs in the business who've kind of really got on it. And, and they've followed through and they've, you know, sent their open letters and sent their list of demands and, and uh, you know, really kind of got on the case. And it, it's difficult because it, whenever you do that, especially when you're in employment in a big company, you're kind of setting your neck on the line because people know where you stand. You know, it's a lot easier just to keep quiet. But people are, you know, taking a stand. And, and rightfully so. You know, enough money is made out of, of the black music side of the business mm. that, that we deserve to have proper representation. Agreed. Mm. <laughs> Agreed. So you touched on a few things there, you know, managing Stevie Wonder, having a management company, um, being a GM of a label, mm. there's so much. I mean, what was it like managing Stevie Wonder for those that don't know? Because that is a an amazing thing. Well, a few things. First of all, you know, Stevie he doesn't like to call it having a manager. He has a management team, right? Uh, and I've worked with Stevie. I still do. You know, I've worked with him since 1978. So, amazing. in fact, we've worked together for 42 years. Yeah. And we, we still have a laugh about it because, you know, these days when, when we meet people, we say, oh, this is Keith. We've known each other more than half our lives. <laughs> given, given how old we both are, that's yeah. quite a statement. But, yeah. but what happened was that I got involved with Stevie because when I was head of promotions for Motown, when the Motown artists would come into the UK, the, the head of promotions job kind of spilt over into kind of artist relations because right. they were a long way from home, you know, and, um, and so I was not just doing the business side, but also, you know, if they needed to go to dinner, I'd be taking them to dinner or, you know, if they needed something in London, you know, I was their point person. Mm. And I was, again, I was fortunate because Motown at the time still had, you know, a lot of their, their, their stars. Yes, yeah, so Smokey Robinson was the very first artist that I remember looking after. He came into London with his wife, Claudette, and his, his two children. <clears throat> and um, I looked after them for about a week. And then it was Thelma Houston. And then it was the Supremes. Then it was the Commodores. And, and all these Motown artists were coming through. And actually, Stevie was probably one of the last that I met. Because he didn't come into the UK until I'd been working at Motown for, for more than a year. Mm. So, so we met and and um, we just got on. You know, it was it was a, a very strange thing to have people from such completely different backgrounds mm. who really we just saw eye to eye. And so it was more than just that kind of working relationship. It was a kind of a friendship as well. That's amazing. Yeah. And so he invited me to go and work with him in America, which I did. So I moved to LA in, in 1978 to work with Stevie and I worked, I was what he called his operations manager. Mm. 
Mm. And basically what happened was at the time he had two senior members of his business team. There's a guy called Ewart Abner, who was Stevie's kind of business manager, who had been the president of Motown. And there's a guy called Johanan Vigoda, who was Stevie's lawyer, who famously renegotiated his contract when he turned 21 at Motown, and then renegotiated it again, just before Songs of the Key of Life came out. So it was Abner, Vigoda, and me. I was kind of the, the in the center of that, because I was close to Stevie as a kind of uh, confidant kind of advisor. So I was going to the business meetings. I was learning from these guys, which was, you know, a fantastic school to have people mm -hmm. at, that, at that level and that level of wisdom to learn from. But because I was younger, I was, I'm roughly the same age as Stevie. He's actually a year older than me. Mm -hmm. um, but um, because I was his age, you know, I had more of a, of a take of what it was, what it meant to people of our age. Mm. So, you know, in, in, in campaigns and in advice, for instance, um, I remember Stevie calling me one day and, you know, <laughs> it's funny, you, you know, how you can remember certain moments where you were. <laughs> yeah. And I remember him calling me, he said, listen, Keith, I've got this really good idea. And I said, well, yeah, what's the idea? He said, I think we should take on the campaign to make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday. And I'm going to say, yes, great idea. <laughs> it had been started by a guy called Congressman John Conyers, uh, who was yeah. in Congress from Detroit. Uh, but it, it had died, the campaign had died. And so he said, I think we should try and make this happen. And I remember saying, yeah, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> and saying, yeah. did you organize it? <laughs> I said, <laughs> Well, okay, let's try. You know, so we started on the King campaign. Yeah, and it was, it, it was one of those things because I must have been, I guess, 29 at the time. So I was relatively young. And, you know, when you take on something of that enormity, you know, sometimes it's good to be young and inexperienced. You don't realize, you don't realize what you're doing. Yeah. You know, taking on. Yeah. And I think probably the great thing about working with Stevie then was it kind of helped to make me fearless. Yeah. Because he was 27, I think, when we first met. Now I was 26. Right. And yeah. you know, when you're young, you are fearless. Right. And so, you know, we just did all kinds of stuff, which we were too young to know better. Yeah. And, and that's, that, was, that was how it was. I mean, the, the great thing about it's quite hard now to put it in context because the world has changed mm. <clears throat> and now because of social media and the way the way the internet works everybody knows everything yeah right? <laughs> but then you know a lot of people didn't know anything so I, there's a story i always tell because it's kind of illustrative of how things were back then right <clears throat> and it started with stevie calling me up and he asked me if I could give him a ride to his mother's house, right? And I was kind of, this is, I'd only been in LA for probably a month, right? And he's saying, can you give me a ride? I'm thinking, this is pretty scary. Yeah. I'm driving on the wrong side of the road. 
I'm in a city I've been in for a month. I don't really know my way around. And he wants to ride to his mother's house. And, and arguably at that time, Stevie Wonder was, was probably the most famous artist in the world then. Yeah. Right? So I'm kind of, well, okay, he's the boss. So I, I go around, I pick him up, and he gets in the car and I say, okay, where she live? He says, I don't know, I'm blind. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, I kind of had to learn the city pretty quickly. And also, you know, learn how he operates pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I remember one particular incident, and that, again, it's an incident I talk about quite a lot because it's, it's just illustrative of how things were, you know. So, you know, this would be a few months later. So I've, I've got, by now I've got used to driving Stevie around, right? So it's just me and him in the car, and we're driving along, and because I've got used to it and got comfortable with it, I've got slack, right? And I looked down at the dashboard and I realized that the cars, the, the petrol lights come on. Mm. Right? So I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm going to stop the petrol, which never happened, you know, because I would always make sure the car was full if I'm going to take Stevie somewhere. And, you know, I've got lax, so I've forgotten. Mm. So I have to say, listen, Steve, I'm going to have to stop the petrol because the uh, petrol light's on. Because you know, the one thing worse than stopping the petrol is Stevie under the car. He's running out of petrol. He's still running the car. Mm. So he said, that's fine. I'm thinking, yeah, you think it's fine because you can't see where we are. Right? Mm. We were right in the middle of the Sunset Strip. <laughs> so I pulled into the petrol station, filled up, went and paid in the kiosk, and was walking back to the car. There's a black guy going to get in the, on the driver's side. Wow. So I have to say, oh, you know, so I run out and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he says, oh, I was just going to say hi to Stevie, man. I said, well, you can't, you can't just yeah. get in the car. You know, what do you mean? <laughs> so he said, well, okay. So I said, well, just wait here. So I make him stand by the car, and I kind of open the door just a little bit. I make him come round behind me, and I'm holding the door to make sure he can't just jump in. <laughs> yeah. So I said, Stevie, somebody wants to say hi to you. And he says, Stevie, how are you doing? And Stevie says, hey, Herbie, how are you? It's Herbie Hancock. <laughs> 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 I, had, I had no idea, you know, because I mean? Herbie was just the name on a record sleeve to me. Yeah, I'm not aware that I'd even seen a photograph of him. Yeah, I knew the name. Yeah, and yeah. that's kind of how it was working with Stevie because at that time, obviously, he was a magnet for everybody who was anything in black society. Yeah. So you know, you you ended up rubbing shoulders with with people who were just icons. You know, and looking back now, you know, I sometimes find myself wondering whether it was true. I kind of know it was true. Mm. But it makes me, I end up wondering kind of whether it was true. Yeah. 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 A dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. I watched um, the other night, I watched that Hitsville USA. I'd, I'd seen the, the documentary in the cinema. You know, The Mokey of Motown. Have you seen that film? I need to watch it. My big up, my friend Sharan. He told me it's on Amazon. Uh, yeah, the latest one on Amazon, yes. Yeah, and I need to watch it. I think I started, I might have started, um, but I need to watch it. Yeah, you should watch it. Uh, well, I'd seen it in the cinema, right? Mm. And I enjoyed it, but the, the Amazon version is is longer. There's the, the lots of things which were left out, I guess, for the reasons of, of length of film. Mm. And so, there are lots of, of things in the Amazon version which weren't in the cinema version. So I'd, I'd kind of watched it again. 
And mm. it was great because if anybody had been watching, watching me watching that film, they'd be thinking, this guy's crazy. Because <laughs> I'm watching this film with, with a big smile on my face because there were all these people that I'd kind of forgotten about who worked at Moulton. Because like I said, we had an office in the building, the 65 yeah. So all these people that I'd, I, you know, I haven't seen for years, and in a lot of cases you kind of assume they've died or whatever, you know. But there they were, you know, largest life. And and a lot of good points were made in the film because for instance, Motown at the time, and Motown, you know, from Detroit times, they had a lot of women in senior positions, as well as men, which was a, a great statement because Barry just wanted the best people. He didn't care male, female, black, white. You know, they had a lot of, of women and the people I haven't seen, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about like Faye Hale and Brenda Boyce and Billie Jean Brown and all these people who were working in senior positions at Motown, you know, mm -hmm. and made the company tick. And at the time, I didn't notice, you know, there were, you know, obviously I noticed the women, but you didn't, you didn't yeah. think about the fact that in the rest of the business, there were very few women in senior positions. But Barry didn't yeah. care. He just wanted, if you had a contribution to make, he kind of wanted you in there, right? And, and so it, the, the film, the whole film made me smile. And also that relationship between Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson made me smile. Mm. Because, you know, I'm lucky enough to know both the men. And you could just see the genuine warmth in the relationship. You know what I mean? And, and when you see two great characters like that, who still, after all these years, have got that amazing strength of relating them are cultural icons. You know, I really loved watching mm. the film. Just it, it, it kind of took me back. And like I say, it was one of those moments where I kept sort of pinching myself, thinking, how could you possibly know these people? You know? <laughs> it, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I was born in Newcastle. And lived most yeah. of my life in the north of England. It's not like, you know, um, it's it's just it's crazy. But I've I've been very fortunate. And then so managing Stevie and that's going well. But being a part of the team and you're still a part yeah. of the team. And then what leads you to come back to England and work with a few eyes? I guess we should touch on the management company because now you're <laughs> back in London. You're being entrepreneurial. You know, how, how did that come about and how did that go? Well, what happened was that I was working with Stevie. It was all going fine, but how could I put this? It, it didn't feel, it felt like I needed to do something for myself, right? And that's no disrespect to Stevie, but if, if, if you've ever seen James Brown, did you ever see James Brown perform? No. You'll be too young for that. Okay. <laughs> but James Brown used to, uh, uh, the last song in his set, right, he used to do a song called Please Don't Go. Right? And as he came off the, off the stage, there's the guy with the cape. He used to come and throw the cape off his, on his shoulders. And as he walked off, the, the guy would be patting his back. And when he got to the wings, he'd throw the cape off his shoulders and come back and do another couple of you know, stanzas, stanzas of the song. And then the guy would come out with another really great, brightly coloured cape and put this other cape on his shoulder and walk him off, patting his back, right? And then he'd get to the wings and he'd throw the cape off and come. And he'd, they'd do this three or four times, right? 
Yeah. And I remember somebody saying to me, see the guy putting the cape on James Brown's shoulders? I said, yeah. I said, you know, it's the same guy who's been doing that since like 1966 or whatever. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, how the penny sort of drops. And much as I love Stevie, the idea that somebody would be saying in like 25 years time, see that guy with Stevie Wonder? Yeah. That's the guy that's been <laughs> all these years. So I, I felt that I needed to try and do something for myself. So I kind of let Stevie know that I was going to have to leave. Mm. You know, at that time I had no plan, but I did know that I was going to have to leave. So I told him I was going to leave and move back to the UK. And mm. when I moved back to the UK, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And actually there's a concert promoter school called Barry Marshall, Martial Arts. And Barry uh, was a friend of mine. And he'd said to me, oh, have you heard about this young kid who's got, who's got this record out that seems to be doing a bit, make a bit of noise in America? And it was Junior. Mm. So he said, so why don't you manage him? We can co-manage him if you like. So I said, okay. So I started my management company, started managing Junior. Then Junior said, you know, he'd rather I did it on my own rather than with Barry. So I ended up with Junior as my first client. Then I managed a band called Central Line, uh, who had a hit record, Walking in Sunshine. And... Um, and, you know, really, I got involved in the management thing almost by accident, but obviously I had a, a range of contacts having worked with Stevie and so on and so forth. And also, I got out of the management thing, into the management thing because no, there were no other job offers on the horizon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which you, you'd think was strange. I made this point in the letter mm. that you would expect somebody who'd come back from, from working in Stevie Wonder's management in America for three or four years, coming back to the UK music industry, to maybe have the occasional job offer. <laughs> yeah. Just a, just a one. <laughs> yeah. But actually, apart from Barry Marshall, who offered, you know, offered me to come into his company, I was not offered, I had no other job offers until 2006 when Fran Neverkler, who was, the, who was the, the um, chairman and CEO of PPL, asked me mm. to come in as director of performer affairs. So it'll, it'll tell you, uh, so really I, I kind of came up, became a manager out of necessity, right? Um, although, I mean, I enjoyed it. I'm not gonna complain about it. Um, but, that, but that's just, it's just the reality. I realized that, and, and a lot of people realize there's no point in me waiting for somebody to offer me something. I'm gonna to have to do it for myself. So, so I did. Yeah, yeah. That's that's mad, you know. And it's so I think you touched upon it in the letter that yeah. there was no offer, there was no suggestion, there was no where or anyone to say, look, why don't you come and do this? Well, it's a yeah. crazy thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, just, I mean. it's, it's the reality. I'm sure a lot of young black people now go through the same thing, you know. It's, it, it hasn't that it hasn't changed that much, but it's changed a bit. I'm pleased right. to say. Well, it feels like we're slowly starting to get there. Sorry, I'm moving my camera around because I need to charge my phone. Okay. I charged her phone for me. Yeah, she's uh, more prepared than me. <laughs> <laughs> I just tried to make this work. I might just have to hold it, um, but. In terms of like PPL, Ben, so 
because you touched on that, and I think we should touch on that briefly. P- how PPR of Westminster? How does mm-hmm. how do those things happen? Because honestly speaking, before you get mm-hmm. into it, you've touched and influenced a lot of people. You know, you're talking to someone who met you at PPL yeah. as I said earlier, and I almost went to Westminster UD. I ended up okay. to Bucks instead. Yeah. Um, but I got in there. I got into Westminster. <laughs> but I changed to go Bucks. But um, I mean, let's talk about that. PPR and Westminster Uni. Okay, well, I'll tell you, University of Westminster, what happened there was that when they were setting up the degree, a guy called Norton York and Simon Pitt were the people who founded the degree. And mm. when they were setting it up, with those kind of vocational degrees, the universities normally ask that um, you have what they call a professional advisory panel. Yeah. So it's a panel of people from the industry who advise and say, look, if somebody came to me with a BA honours in commercial music, these are the things that I would expect them to know. Right? So it's to make sure that when you set up a vocational degree, you are going to be teaching the right things you know, for that business. So I was on the professional advisory panel Again, it was a free thing. You know, they'd ask me, would you come in and, and sit on the panel? So I went and sat in on the panel. Right? And I forgot about it. You know, did the panel, and that was it. They went off, <clears throat> and they started the degree. Well, the degree ran, ran for a year, and then I got a call from them to say, look, um, the degree's been running for a year, and we're having a kind of uh, an end-of-year celebration. Uh, mm. Would you like to come? So I said, okay. Yeah. So I went along to this thing and had a lecture from a, an American lawyer. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, wasn't that interested in that. But, you know, we went along and, and then it was the usual sort of wine and cheese and, you know, <laughs> polite conversation afterwards. And in the course of the conversation, I just said, so how's it going? Yeah, it's been running for a year. How's it going? And Norton said, well, it's, it's going fine, except that, the students who were doing the music business part of the course, they were being taught by people, the lectures from the Harrow Business School, right? Mm. They were being taught the music business by lectures from the Harrow Business School, none of whom had any experience in the music business at all. So you're saying, you're saying the students are feeling you know, a little bit kind of dissatisfied with that and were wondering whether... Um, you, you you might know any we were wondering whether you might know anybody who would kind of come in with a, a music business background to make it feel a bit more real right well a couple of things first of all i, I went away i said well actually well, not no as a manager the first thing i said was how much does it pay <laughs> and he told me and i said no i don't think i know anybody's prepared to work for that because you know, <laughs> well, he just said not that good right yeah. Um, but then I went up when I thought about it. And, and what had happened over the years, as I've told you before, there have been many kind of false dawns of people trying to do stuff about the black music side of the business. Mm. And one of the common excuses was, well, we can't find people who are qualified. You know, we'd like to have more black people in, but, you know, people aren't qualified. Well, it was a ridiculous argument to make because nobody was qualified for the music business. You know, people got in because they knew somebody or they knew somebody who knew somebody. That's kind of how mm. people entered the business. But I thought to myself, you know what? There's now going to be a degree in commercial music. 
So if we get a lot of black people in course, they can't say they're not qualified. Yeah. <laughs> and so, right. I thought, you know, so I went away and I thought about it. And I said, so I went back to Norton and said, look, um, if you are prepared to accept the fact that I'm a manager first and a lecturer second, then I'd be happy to come in and give it a shot. Uh. Right? And, and he took a fire on it and said, yeah, okay, give it. So I, so I went in and, and kind of had to rewrite the way the module was formed to, to suit the way that I wanted to teach it. And then I just started you know, teaching the music business. Um, which yeah. Sounds crazy when you, think, when you think about it. But I ended up teaching there for 16 years and then they gave me my honorary doctorate and stuff. Um, That's amazing. So it's, something I, it's something I enjoyed. Um, yeah. And it was great. It was, it was actually reassuring as well because in order to teach something, you need to know it better. So yeah. there are lots of stuff that you think you know in the business, but I had to go back and make sure that was right you know, before I pass yeah. on the information. And that was really good for me too. Yeah, yeah. so that's, that was, that's how I got involved in Westminster. The PPL thing, what happened, that's, that's in a way, is, is down to a, one of the saddest episodes of my managerial career, which is I was managing Lyndon David Hall, right? Yeah. And he got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, right? Yeah. Which, you know, is a type of cancer. And when he first got it, we were, we were actually, it was a fairly crucial time because he just recorded his scene in um, the film Love Actually. Mm. I, don't, I don't know if you've seen that film. Yeah. But Lyndon, got, um, what's the actor? Oh, Hugh Grant? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hugh Grant. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lyndon's in the film, right? Because yeah. a, a couple get married in the film. Yeah. And as they turn around to come walk out the church, Lyndon is in the, in the balcony singing All You Need Is Love to them, right? And we were going to go and use that as a springboard to kind of launch his next single and his album. And yeah. then he came to me and said, look, I've been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I didn't really know what it was, but I looked it up and, and the prognosis was pretty good. It said, you know, 80% recovery rate. Oh. So I just said to him, well, look, you know, I mean, go away, get well. Let's, another chance will come up. You know, no. let's don't worry about this. You know, you just go and get well, and then we'll look for something else. Well, he went away, but sadly, he never got well, and he died about two and a half years later, having been sick all that time. So that was really traumatic. Obviously, it, 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 I'd never been through an artist dying when I was managing them, right? No. And and particularly somebody who was so young, because Linda was only thirty-one when he died. So, you know, I was kind of trying to decide what I was going to do next. Yeah. It, it didn't seem right just to replace him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, uh, even though that would have been the natural thing to do. You know, find another axe and just, you know, work with that. Um, and as it happened, I got a call from Fran, who was the chairman of PPL. And this is, this is a much more typically music business story, right? Oh. Fran called me up and he asked me about somebody. He said, what do you think of so-and-so? I'm not going to tell you who it was. <laughs> uh, and I said, 
Yeah, they're all right. As far as I know, I don't know them well, but you know, I haven't heard anything bad. Yeah. And he said, oh, because I was thinking, you know, now that PPL has become a joint society, because it used to be only a record company society. Yes, yes. And this was when it first started representing performers as well. So he said, now that it's become a joint society representing record companies and performers, we're going to have a director of performer affairs. So I'm thinking of recruiting this guy's director of performer affairs. I said, oh, sounds, sounds fine to me. You know, I've, yeah, I've been bad. Yeah. But then he said to me, so um, did you see the advert for it? I said, no. He said, oh, well, I'll send you the advert. Because I didn't even know what this director of performer affairs role was. Yeah. The advert, I looked at it. I said, oh, yeah, interesting. Good. I put it down. Didn't think about it. Yeah. So about two days later, Fran calls me up again. He says, did you get the ad? I said, yeah. <laughs> well, he said, would you be interested in it? I said, well, I thought you were going to appoint this guy. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, well, I was talking to a few people and they thought that you might be a better fit. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. Uh, you know, because at this time, like, I was trying to consider what I was going to do, you know, post-Linden. Yeah. Um, so I went and had a meeting with him and a couple of the other board members. And... Um, and actually, it sounded like quite an exciting thing because performers were going to be coming into PPL for the first time. And the role was to make sure that performers got a fair deal. Yeah. PPL was owned by the record companies. And performers were quite anxious that if they were going to put their rights in there, that they were going to get treated. Yeah. So my role was to come in there and be the performer advocate and to make sure the performers got a good deal. Yeah. So, I, so I basically agreed to do it. And I went over there, but basically, I agreed to do it as long as I could do it as a freelance. Yes, I know. Because, yeah, well, because, well, it was partly because there are two reasons for that. I mean, partly because I'd, I'd been freelance pretty much all my working life, <clears throat> but also because, you know, my role, if I found something wrong, which wasn't really in the performer's favor, I needed to oh. be able to blow the whistle on it, right? Yeah. If I had become a full director of PPL, your company law would have stopped me publicly saying anything that would damage the company. Mm. Right? So it would kind of have prevented me from doing the very thing I was brought in to do. Because if I found out that I felt that the performers weren't being treated properly, yeah, I would have been muzzled. I wouldn't be able to say anything. Yeah. So I, so I came in as a freelance to do that job. Yeah. Which, you know, was, it was... Um, it was good in one way. I mean, it did mean I didn't get my company pension and and uh, <laughs> yeah, and that kind of stuff. But but it did mean yeah. that I could do the job properly. Yeah. So um, so I came and I was, and I was director of performer affairs at PPL for ten years or nine years, That's and then amazing. I became a consultant. And then in the end, I, I left in January. Yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And and I guess like the last one I was going to touch on is such a illustrious journey is you got awarded an OBE, you know, yeah, yeah. a doctor well, was, at an OBE. Well, that was weird as well. Please, because, well, <laughs> well, well, what happened? Because, uh, you know, I have never really been into that, you know, that side of things. You know, I, mean, I find it quite interesting when, you know, when people get those awards, but I don't, I don't know anything about it, didn't understand it at all. And what, out of the blue, 
I got a letter. And the letter said something along the lines of, you know, the Prime Minister is minded to recommend to the Queen that you are presented with an OBE. But we'd like to know that if you are uh, recommended, uh. You know, or if it's, a, if it's um, put forward, will you accept it? Right, because yes, I heard they ask people, yeah, will you say yeah, yes? Yeah, yeah. Well, loads of people turn it down, right? Um, you know, look, I'm not important enough to turn it down. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, if, if the country wants to make me a, an award, even though it's got, it's got a dodgy name, you know, mm. I'm not going to turn that down. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but, but I did say, what happened was, I said, this letter came in, and I said to my wife, I said, look, I've got this letter in. Because it comes on fairly plain paper, pretty innocuous stuff. Mm. And I said to my wife, um, you know, I think somebody's winding me up here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll send this letter back and then we won't talk about it again. You know? mm. And let's just see what happens. I think, I, I think it's a bit of a wind up. So I sent the letter back and, and I, we literally didn't discuss it at all. And it said that if it goes through, it will be announced in the Queen's birthday honours list. And this was 2015, I think it was. Um, so, and they said the 12th of June is the Queen's birthday honours. So that particular day, I was up doing a, a, yet another free panel <laughs> up yeah. in Scotland for some young people in Scotland. So I'd flown up to Glasgow first thing in the morning, done this panel all day, flew down, I got back down to Heathrow at about half past ten at night. Mm. And I got off the plane. I'd heard nothing. So I was thinking, thank goodness I didn't tell anybody because it would have been so embarrassing. <laughs> it clearly yeah. wasn't going to be winding me up, right? Um, and then when I got off the plane, I got a phone call. It was actually from my daughter. Yeah. And she said, oh, congratulations, Dad. I said, on what? Yeah. And she said, on, on your OBE. I said, well, how do you know? <laughs> and she said, because my daughter's a civil servant, right? So she works for the government anyway. Mm. And she said, oh, it's, it's been announced. It's in the honours list. Mm. So I said to her, well, yeah, but, you know, how did you know to even look? <laughs> you know, because mm. I hadn't said anything to her. Yeah. And she said, oh, well, what had happened was that when the original nomination came in, one of her colleagues, who was also in the civil service fast stream, as it's called, who works in the cabinet office, I got hold of her and said, oh, so is your dad? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah. So she kind of knew that I was up for it, right? But it, I think it had taken a year since when, she, when that first happened before the nomination was announced. So basically I was, I was giving it four services to the music industry which was a, a surprise for me, but a pleasant surprise. And, you know, and as I said right at the start, yeah. it's important to me that whatever the award is called, that young black people can see other black people being recognised, acknowledged, or whatever. You know, yeah. turn something like that down, all that happens is I haven't got it. Yeah. You know? 
it doesn't really make a statement, you know, because I'm not important enough to make a statement. Mm. So, you know, I'm, I'm flattered and honoured to have been given it. Mm. And uh, also, lots of people wrote really good sort of citations on my behalf. Mm. And it was not right, it wouldn't be right when people have kind of put themselves out to that degree for me just to turn it down right i'm not yeah. arrogant to do that so you know I'm, I'm flattered to have it you know i quite like the the initials behind my name <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't necessarily use it all the time yeah but it's nice to have you know and I, i'm pleased with that you know and and, and same and same with the honorary doctorate i mean basically that was something which again, somebody in Westminster suggested at the university, suggested I should have because of the work I'd put in on the honest degree in commercial music and, and, and how successful the degree had been. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's important. You know, on that graduation day, you know, usually when they have the honorary doctorates, it's normally, you know, a middle-aged white guy getting it. Yeah. Instead of a middle-aged black guy. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's it's important, and again, you know, it's a tribute to my students that I should be given that award. You know, so I was again, I was very grateful for it. You know, I don't take any of those things lightly. You know, I don't necessarily put them forward as the first thing you should know about me, but I'm really grateful for it and 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 respectful of the fact that I've been given those honors. You know, not everybody does. You know, there are lots of people. I know I've done as much, if not more than me, mm. and I've never been recognized at all. So, you know, I'm not going to turn it down if I'm, if I'm going to be recognized. I'm, I'm happy about it. All right. Well, that's brilliant. And uh, <laughs> we've got a few questions here. Oh, really? Of the time. Not... <laughs> um, we're just getting to one let's see if we've got time because we're actually running out of time yeah um rich casella says stevie wonder is one of the greatest artists ever how do we find a long-time legacy black artist from the uk uh what were the key traits you think great artists need to have okay well i'll tell you something this is this is one of the key traits about great artists when i work before you start stevie, well, you know we're gonna have to do that because you've got a minute and a half left and i feel like you're gonna <laughs> need to get into this so we're gonna have to look off and come back on uh okay but uh you know i'm not gonna be that long but <laughs> no because it's you... just ticking it's ticking you've got a one minute left literally okay. and it's gonna okay. cut us. so what we're we gonna do you don't have to log on now so we're gonna log off and we're gonna yeah. come straight back and answer rich castello's question okay uh, right. i'll, I'll try sec. and justice <laughs> one sec okay <laughs> 